Hey guys, today's episode is a good one. It's an expert panel session on ethics, AI and disabilities chaired by Abby James of AbilityNet and including stars from Apple, Google, Microsoft and the Ada Lovelace Institute. Okay, thank you. This is a really interesting panel to host. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots of interesting questions today. So um, I'm, I, we all know, we all hear about AI now in our mainstream technology. Also, those of you who are in the assistive technology world, we know that there's been some great products and innovations already using assistive technology. Um, but likewise, there's been a few murmurings in the mainstream press, I'm sure, when we hear things like fake news, etc., about the potential downsides of AI. And uh, what today we're going to do is look particularly at what that means for accessibility. Um, How do we make sure that with this uh, runaway train of AI potentially taking over our employment opportunities and our technology, that we make sure that it also is inclusive from day one. So I'm going to ask the panel here, who I know have lots of ideas and thoughts, and I hope you will have lots of questions, to briefly introduce themselves um, and also uh, the particular areas they'd like to talk about. So Rima, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, uh, Rima Patel from the Ada Lovelace Institute. Um, Ada is a relatively new organisation. Um, we're established um, in order to ensure that data and AI work for people in society. So we're very interested in the social and the ethical implications of the use of data and AI. And I'm uh, head of public engagement at um, at the Ada Lovelace Institute. So um, as as part of that, inclusion is absolutely essential to a conversation about ethics. Oh, yeah. So when you say ethics. What are the general areas of ethics when we're talking about AI? And So um, if I could come on to the conversation about ethics as part of my response. Yes. Uh, but I think there's a really important point, which is that the term ethics has become quite contested, particularly in this year. And uh, it's really important. So one of, one of the things that I um, think is really important is that we move beyond what's been described as ethics washing by academics and thinkers and also ethics shopping where you've just got a list of principles. For me it's about the responsiveness and the inclusiveness to voices and diverse perspectives and also almost uh, I, I like to see ethics as a muscle you know uh, 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 conduct practices behaviours embedded in the way that companies and organisations operate. Oh, well, that's really interesting. Now we're going to move on to the companies. That's really great. So, Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Sarah Herlinger, and I am the Director of Global Accessibility Policy and Initiatives at Apple. Um, in my role, I look at accessibility across everything we do as a company from kind of the 30,000-foot level. So um, in, in relevance to this, it's, it's looking at how we as a company incorporate AI and ML into so many of the things that we do and ensuring that as teams across Apple are working in this area, that there is a thoughtfulness about ensuring that accessibility is a part of that conversation and that we continue to build in a way that supports all of our users. Great. And Christopher from Google. Yes, my name is Christopher Patton. I lead accessibility programs at Google. Um, Google is is, is kind of known for... uh, AI and this kind of processing, and we've been really leaning into the past year in terms of bringing novel and unique tools to help people with different disabilities. We recently released Live Transcribe, which transcribes over 70 different languages in real time. We have like, captions on Android. So 
for us, the AI is sort of the core of how we build accessibility into things. Recently, our, our Chrome has the ability to create um, uh, images, alt text for images, um, similar to iOS does as well. So leaning into this, this AI space gives us an opportunity to help a lot of people, but it also opens up a, a bunch of questions of how is the best way to create the best experience? What is the most ethical way? How do you reduce bias? And that's sort of what I'm focusing on here. Great. And Anya. Hi, um, I'm Anya Tima. I'm a senior researcher at Microsoft. I'm actually based uh, in Cambridge. And um, I've, over the years, worked on a, on a couple of inclusive technology design projects, one of which was um, Project Torino, which is like a physical programming language um, for children who might be blind or low vision so that they can learn how to code and do that together with other children so they're not excluded from learning. And also I've worked quite a bit on computer vision technology for people with vision impairments, thinking about how this technology can help perhaps um, enlarge an understanding of the surroundings and other people around, which is quite similar to some of the features that seeing AI has. It's quite a um, sort of popular app uh, amongst the blind community. So I think a lot of what, what we do is about thinking about how can we work really closely with people um, from different communities and groups and abilities in the design of these kinds of technologies, whether this is AI or any other kind of technology, and that's really at the heart um, of what we do. Great, thank you. Well, please do post your questions on Slido, but I'm going to ask, um, first of all, um, I'm going to ask Sarah, can you think about uh, with accessibility and the potential going forward? We've already heard mention of some of the applications already in accessibility, but where do you see from a technology development point of view we could see benefits from AI before we go into the ethical side? Yeah, well, I think um, there's so many different ways to think about how you can use AI um, and, and how that applies for individuals with disabilities and, and where that might be even more important in that case. You know, I mean, even at, at its simplest level, if you think about, um, you know, a photo app or something, as Christopher was saying, for those of us who, who are sighted who just might type in, show me photos of cats out of my own, you know, library, that could be one thing. For someone who is reliant solely on uh, the, the audible information that comes back about what is in this specific uh, um, photo, that can be much more important. And so I think as we look at AI and how we continue to build on um, gathering data and using that data in order to provide hopefully helpful information to people, it's important to make sure that we're doing it in a way that um, is thoughtful in that approach. So in terms of talking there about data gathering, um, Rima, would you like to talk more a bit about the ethical areas that can be inclusive uh, when we're talking about gathering data and AI? So, so the, can, I'm, I need to understand the question a bit better. <laughs> what, what, what's the so when we're talking about the need to gather data as part of AI, is there any ethical considerations we need to... Yeah, I think, I think very, very much so. So uh, the key, the fundamental is that most AI machine learning systems are data-driven. So we think about the necessary condition for um, machine learning as, as effectively um, large data sets often gathered um, and, and used, interpreted, analysed, um, in order to make decisions about uh, people, groups of people, um, or offer a particular product or a particular service. Um, that, of course, raises a range of ethical questions, um, which are uh, well-known, um, but I, I'll talk about them. I mean, there's uh, the age-old chestnut of, of, of privacy and, and the trade-offs inherent there, and whether there are indeed any trade-offs. So people... Um, 
often share information about themselves when they're accessing tools and apps um, and may not necessarily realise the level of and the granularity of the information that they're sharing in order to access a tool or an app. So there's a particular concern. I think just to keep things quite concise, um, there's also concerns particularly around surveillance and um, uh, the, the extent to which the data about them is being used for other purposes. Um, but in, in relation to disabled people in particular, to keep this quite concise, I think what's important is um, a particular concern that um, if uh, one is disabled and you use technology more often or you're more likely to use technology or you interface with a public service that uses technology, there may actually be more data that's being gathered um, that may raise particular ethical concerns. And this is a, something that's... Um, in the States, Virginia Eubanks has written about quite extensively the, the nature of a relationship mm. between um, people who use technology and, and that technology in a data-driven world does raise particular challenges and, and considerations that need to be thought about. Great. I mean, that actually touches on one point question that's come up, popular question from the audience, that uh, should machine learning tools attempt to identify individuals who are using assistive technology? I wonder if Sarah or Christopher, you have a, a view on that in terms of gathering data. Christopher? Um, I, I can see sort of both sides of the, of the argument. If, if we were able to determine if someone was, had a need for assistive technology they, and, and one that they don't know about, it would be really helpful for us to sort of disclose in real time, did you know that you could have a magnifier in your operating system, but we don't want people to be sort of tracked and we don't want to have people be sort of identified and, and create this sort of um, situation where we're targeting you because of a disability. So being able to, to understand what someone needs and do it in a, in, a, in a private way that allows them to learn more about the technology and it gives them an opportunity to have a better experience using the technology is useful. But then you don't want to have, say, a, a browser tag that says this is for a person using a screen reader because then you could create a situation where people are meeting, making a separate experience for that and that separate but equal situations that we want to, to avoid. Yeah, that, that's a particular issue as well. And I wanted to ask Anya, in terms of your experience with uh, developing new products and services for people with in- inclusive uh, needs, do you see um, how we can take those methodologies and apply it to AI to improve AI in any way? Which kinds of methodologies are you thinking? So, so the techniques that you've used around developing um, services you mentioned, coding for blind children and such like. Well, the blinding for uh, for, um, the coding application is actually not using any AI. Um, But there is a lot of things that we are thinking about and how we're addressing certain um, biases or sort of risks around discrimination, exclusion. Um, First first and foremost, really helping um, development teams understand more that bias is an issue and actually help raising awareness of the potential implications that it can have um, if you don't consider it in the kinds of in, in the data sets that you might use for machine learning or AI applications and how we can help people understand or give them tools to look for um, you know to, to understand that maybe the data set is homogeneous and might not have sort of um, the diversity of behaviors or physical appearances that certain groups might represent which then can lead to uh, issues for example take a face uh, recognition app that might not detect somebody properly because they might have a condition of Down syndrome. And if you haven't included this diversity in your data sets, then, then you can't provide that functionality. And there's a lot of risks 
that come with it as well uh, to people with disabilities. There's a lot of sort of uh, examples of failure um, cases that could be imagined or actual failure cases that we can also learn a lot from. So a good example here might be um, the Uber self-driving car incident in Arizona where um, a woman was wheeling a bike to cross the street and unfortunately that self-driving car hadn't wasn't able to make sense of that unknown object that was there because it couldn't detect the person because there were wheels. And that kind of then raises the question, well, you know, what if the person that was crossing there was a wheelchair user? Have these kinds of scenarios been considered in how the technology is being developed? Is that part of the training set? So raising awareness, thinking about the data sets, the, the, the construction of those data sets, and having a representative sample is really important. So there's actually a couple of questions here, which is sort of to do with policy and law. And those of you who hear me talk, I get onto policy stuff, and we've heard already about the stick. So um, it'd be interesting to hear from uh, Google and Apple about what does the role of a regulation play in terms of developing AI and making sure it's um, accessible. And one person said, so should, is there a need for legislation to compel people to make AI algorithms public even? Well, I think... Um you know, part of what goes on with AI and machine learning is it's it's an iterative process, and so I think it, you know there's a, a when you talk about regulations, regulations tend to be written once and stick that way for a very long time until you know potentially 20 years later some change gets made to them. So I don't know that regulations uh, they may initially be a driving force for some people to do something. Over time, I think they become less valuable as, because, I mean, you and I were talking earlier about how in some ways AI is in its infancy, but in other ways it is moving so fast that we have to stay on top of these things around bias and such. So I think there's a, you know, maybe an initial uh, reason for it, but as time goes by, we have to do a lot more just based on our own, um, you know, the iterative process of trying to make sure that we're doing right and what are the the sort of core values and and ways that we look at all of this data and and how we put it out to the world is, is sort of our central focus. Uh, Rima, would you like to say anything on that? So, I mean, it's really interesting. One of the things that we're interested in at the Ada Lovelace Institute is. Uh, a governance ecosystem that people find trustworthy and they have trust in. So I think governance as a whole is complex, so it comprises of various layers, but regulation as part of that, I think, has a really important role to play in terms of articulating the standards that are expected um, uh, for people who design and develop technology. So for instance, we're looking at data governance. We are launching a programme in the new year uh, looking specifically at data governance, of which regu- changing regulation is a core part. But we're also looking at things like narratives. So how do we talk about data in a way that means that people can be part of that conversation, that discourse? And we're also looking at practice. So what does it mean for practical intervention to um, to strike the balance between um, innovation and, uh, and and rights, for instance, appropriately and in a trustworthy way. Um, facial recognition technology is a really good example. We published a report very recently called Beyond Face Value, 
and um, we surveyed over 4,000 people across the country. And one of the things that we found from our survey in terms of attitudes to different applications of facial recognition technology is the um, extent to which people were concerned about its use. And in particular, a number of people used the opportunity to tell us anonymously about their concerns that it might be used to discriminate against them if they had mental health conditions, um, i.e. it might make inferences about who they are as individuals. Um, that are not in alignment with, with, with their identity or, or, or their sense of personhood. And, I mean, the, this applies to mental health, but it also applies really interestingly to, um, you know, other cases. So, for example, transgendered individuals and, and others. And I think that's a really important um, area. And one of the things that we have recommended around that is around practice, which is um, think, thinking about the, uh, the application of a moratorium, i.e. a pause on the use of facial recognition technology until uh, there's been time for adequate consultation, engagement and a proper public debate about it using application in, in various contexts. Um, so I think to get back to your point, which was about regulation, it has its role, but um, it's also about thinking what it does and making sure it doesn't have any unintended effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think uh, what you're highlighting there, or all highlighting, is actually the need to consider the impacts of AI and, and yeah. how do we engage with the development of AI. And I'm seeing quite a lot of questions specific to different types of technology. Um, so I'm just Could I just add one thing yeah, to what, what was just said? Um, there's a woman out of MIT, the MIT Media Lab, who is a deep researcher. She was a, a black woman, and she found that facial recognition software did not work for her, yet when she put on a white mask, it did much better. So having a deep data set, an inclusive data set, is really, really important, especially as these technologies get rolled out into more and more legislative services. We need to make sure that we have a proper data that is thoroughly vetted for, for, for real inclusion, and that's not, it's, it's not just ability, it's race, gender, all of it matters. Yeah, I think that's a couple of points that's come up and things like AI is being used when benefits decisions are being made or, you know, what about what is the good enough quality when we're using automatic captions as such? Um, are we having transparent conversations about uh, this AI and the quality impact when we don't even see it happening in technology? Anya, do you have any points? Well, that's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I think... I'm going to give you a different example as, um, just because you mentioned captioning. So there's been um, one of the things that we've learned from some of the seeing AI work is that, for, ex- for example, people with vision impairments take images slightly differently to people who might have mm-hmm. full sight. And so there's a lot of databases that have images, and so image recognition is fairly robust. But what if these image qualities are, are slightly different because something is blurred, it's not quite in focus, lightning conditions are different, or maybe the, the kinds of things that, be, that are being photographed that somebody might want automatically captioned and described slightly perhaps unusual uh, in the sense of maybe you go for the first time into a hotel room and you try to find out with your camera on the phone where are the plugs to connect my laptop to so I can get power. So it's different kinds of images, different kinds of visual questions and then answering those requires a different perhaps data set in order for the algorithms to be able to perform. And so one of the things that for example the University of Washington is doing is, is starting to generate a data set they've got close to 40,000 pictures now of people who um, have uh, low vision or who are fully blind. So they've captured these images to kind of train algorithms. But they say, and this comes back to an earlier question, you know, we still need more data because some of the things that you might want to ask are about things that are perhaps 
but more sensitive. Maybe you want to recognize somebody who you know, a particular person in an image, or you might have some important documents that you want to photograph and have context about. But then creating data sets that has these kind of personal information that could be really valuable to, to have a context for is, is not quite the same. It's like, okay, here's an image of a plant pot or a coffee mug. You know, it's a, you know, creating these data sets and maybe making them publicly available so to create benchmark data sets is really, really tricky. Well, what would be interesting is if we could have a data set not just of, of people who blind or low vision, but also of what they're taking pictures of yeah. and, and how that, because that would really help training the algorithms. Yeah, and I think, I think that what the thing you're picking up there is the context aspect. And when we're talking mm. about the social model of disability, we all know that context is so important when we're talking about accessibility. Alt text, it, it's the context that you're in of that image that you then need to describe it. And how do we get that context into AI? <laughs> I wonder sometimes whether the AI has to do all of this. Like, why can it not be a more collaborative relationship with people? Like, why does the t AI need to, to take over fully, especially at this early stages where the AI, you know, there's a lot of prospect, but we're still, you know, in the early days of, of developing these kinds of systems and trying to get them more reliable and robust. So maybe the human can still take part in that. I think, I think that's right. I think this is about recognising that technology addresses a need so it's about identifying, and, and, and actually the social model of disability is a really useful way of, I think we need to start with, with the fundamentals, which is the social model of disability, that we're thinking about creating a society and a world where, um, you know, where the barriers um, can be tackled by society in the same way that they are put up by society. And technology is something that we develop and define and it emerges not in a vacuum. It is not the thing that kind of falls out of the air, but it emerges because someone somewhere, uh, groups of people somewhere have identified that there is a need for it. And when we kind of remember that, then the kind of question actually becomes, well, who gets to define the need? Who's got the power in that context? And how, if they've got power that other people don't have, how do you create a context in a world where that power is more distributed? So you don't have unequal power gradients or ever unequal power gradients between those who actually could benefit, use, need the technology, and those who are designing and developing it. One of the big challenges for AI and data-driven system is that when you look at the people who are developing AI and data-driven system, you don't tend to find that they reflect the general population. Um, in fact, this is widely criticised in the context of gender, but also it's an issue in terms of disability and just an issue more generally in terms of socioeconomic diversity as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a big challenge. Yeah, there's an incredible diligence that needs to happen in yeah. terms of ensuring that it's not just one population that's driving the development of AI. Yeah. And I think to some degree, there's a question of even whether there should be an overrepresentation of individuals who are marginalized individuals, whether that be around disability or gender or race or religion or whatever it might be, in order to ensure that we create something that has the, that the, the general population in mind that covers everyone. I think that also the challenge is it's... Um, so, so, so again, we had a very interesting conversation, a coffee break, about frictionless technology. But one of the things that we spoke about was when we talk about frictionless technology, or actually when someone talks about frictionless technology, in their mind, they have an idea of the person it's frictionless for. So, mm -hmm. and, and the reality is that, um, 
you know, that assumption, there's a whole set of assumptions in that mind of the general population. There's assumptions in the mind of a person that's doing designing about what the general population is. And actually the challenge is, maybe it's not the general population. Maybe there is no such thing as frictionless technology because we're making assumptions. And so I think there's something really important about... um, about just just um, yeah, I, I, diversifying and, and broadening the, the the range of perspectives involved. In so I'm going to bring it back round to a point that was made before because we're all saying this is great. We need to be more inclusive. We need to make sure our data set's not biased, and we need to include people with all these wide range. But what about privacy? And what about the ethical considerations, such as you know biometrics as well, and people talking about potential of AI to help with spatial awareness, not just images. How do we deal with that privacy issue? Come on. Well, I think one of the things that that we try to do is by doing more and more of our machine learning and our AI work on device, so it's not going up to a cloud and being used in a, a, a you know bigger situation. It's just what's on your device and and how that device learns you, but it doesn't go out and get shared with anybody else. There, there are also technologies like federated learning, where you, you take small bits of data set, make it make it um, pr- private, you you obfuscate it, and then send it up, and create a larger data set, and that helps create a private set of data that that helps decisions get made. Um, Google, we had this thing called Google Glass, which caused some mm-hmm. concern about about the ability to take video, and this is a real concern. You have the the need. Of a, of, of a light sensor, something that basically takes the vision, of, uh, takes a, a sense of what's around you, but it's not really taking a picture. And we need to just sort of, as, as, as a culture, as a society, realize that just because something can take a picture doesn't mean it's videoing you, it's not recording you, it's actually using it for processing. And I think if we can move the culture around so it's not uh, the concern, as much of a concern, it could really help a lot of people. I mean, like, you take a look at the, the iron glasses, for example, this is something that has a camera and is recording people, but it's really, really useful. And that seems to be sort of helping broaden the abilities, people's willingness to, to, to have a camera on because it's serving a purpose as opposed to just taking Snapchat pictures. And I'm, I'm hoping the accessibility use case actually could help lead the charge in terms of using sensors to provide contextual awareness to, to these algorithms. Yeah, and exactly. And somebody brought up the point of, you know, much of data from AI tech is not open to people being profiled. Do we need companies to be more transparent about what, what they hold and what they are using as well? And there's potential even for people to self-exclude because they don't feel that they want to give out this information, which for, the, you know, for making AI more inclusive is actually really important. But that also impacts um, affordability. To, to have a phone powerful enough to do the kind of work that, that this kind of AI work, you need an expensive phone, a powerful phone. And there is a sacrifice here. If, if you can offload it to the cloud, you can actually do a lot more. But then there's, there's a concern of, of, of privacy. So it's, it's a give and take in terms of how much benefit you want to the price of the device, to the ability of, of the um, user. I think that the Google Glass is an interesting example because here it's not so much infringing on the privacy of the primary user who's wearing the glasses, no, who might get the benefits, but every every other person who may not understand what is going on in that technology. And so how are we then making sure that whatever processing is happening is kind of be done, is done in a privacy-preserving way as much as possible or giving other people a chance to opt in or opt out and how would those interactions even look like in the real world in, in public spaces, private spaces, all these sort of dynamics. 
But I wonder whether maybe one of the first steps, and, and Rima and I talked about this actually, is as well to make privacy like a value, like a value that's really important, um, and a kind of constraint that we then that pushes us to think a little bit more innovatively and kind of innovate around it. If if it is something that we really should kind of put at the forefront as well as a value. And does uh, does privacy include using assistive technology? Does privacy include using technologies that maybe use maybe identifying somebody as disabled or not? I feel like we're getting uh, back into perhaps ethics and, and judgment and where the trade-offs between are we creating benefit for for a person uh, in a way that might where, where is the, where is the trade-off between the, the functionality that you really enable that would be really desirable for somebody to have and what are the costs perhaps that come with that and that's, that's depends on the context the judgment society changing perceptions changing I think if we're responsibly designing AI technology going forward and, and kind of have more dialogue with people I think the kinds of things that we might find acceptable will change as well so it's not an easy transaction <laughs> <laughs> no. so I'm, I'm going to add another very popular question that's come up and then something that's close to my heart um, is we've talked quite a lot actually in the examples you've given about the impact on, on people with neurodiversity and we've put, talked about the positive impact in terms of people with sensory disabilities and captions, alt text etc how can we apply, apply AI to help the more neurodiverse population Can you say that again? So how, what, what, uh, how can we use AI <coughs> to help people with neurodiverse conditions, so mental health, cognitive disabilities, and potentially the elderly, old, the elderly population, instead of these where we seem to have seen the benefits so far have been in sensory disabilities and, and supporting those? Mm-hmm. Well, there's technology now, for example, to help with, dys- with dyslexia. So if you're having a hard time reading, you could have like a read aloud as, as something is reading to you, or, or you can run your finger along something, it could speak the words mm. for you. So there are, there are ways that, that AI can, can help different <laughs> folks. Something that just, that just occurred to me now would be interesting. Again, this is, not, this is me just riffing. This is not a, a Google product in any way. But having something that allows you to sort of dial in or dial down the, the noise in a room. Mm. I, know, I could certainly use that. So in, in, in you and the more you, you use it, it could have some contextual awareness and, and do it for you so you don't have to every time dial this thing up or down. But the ability to sort of interact with your environment and dynamically adjust based off your preferences could be interesting. I mean, I think it's about ask, you know, that, that process of engagement and consultation again and the sort of sh- changing the way the technology develops. So you've asked us this question, but actually I don't feel, as someone who has a hearing impairment, I don't feel very equipped to answer a question that I think, you know, someone um, who who experiences um, a mental health condition should actually answer. I think that we need to create ways of having those conversations. And it goes back to this point about what the social technology is, um, which is if it's addressing a need, then surely the person who's got the need should be articulating what it can and should do. And there is a real gap there in terms of the way it's being where technology is being designed and, and, and developed. And I, I actually speak from personal experience because, for example, as someone who's got a hearing impairment, there have been moments where I have felt incredibly involved and engaged in shaping what my, my, my support and my care looks like. And then there have been moments um, 
where I've been told actually what that looks like. And I can tell you right now that the stuff that I've benefited from has been the stuff where I've been involved in shaping it. And, I'm, and the stuff that I don't use that's still kind of like lying on my windowsill <laughs> or, or, you know, was the stuff that I used to hide when I was a kid. I didn't really want to use it. Was the stuff that my teachers told me, OK, Rima, you need this. Or my parents told me, Rima, you need this. Um, so I think we need to just, yeah, that, that's quite important. <laughs> So. I think I can echo that quite, quite well with the Seeing AI application, which actually started off as a hackathon project within the company and was driven entirely by people to start with who were applying programmers in the company and is still today really driven by their ideas and lived experience. And I think that's really at the heart why this application has actual value and utility for people. Yeah, I think there's a lot uh, around um, you know that level of inclusion of getting people engaged on what are the things that you need because I think you know certainly you could look at some of the more hidden disabilities and and try to determine what AI could do around um, supporting individuals, but until you have those individuals kind of saying what are the pain points in their lives and then thinking through how technology could help solve that, you really can't get very far with it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm picking up somebody said here, you know, it's all about big data. That's all we hear about is we need more data. But actually, and we're now talking about involving users more, but uh, we're all here because it's an accessibility conference. We're interested in accessibility. How do we engage to make sure that AI is being developed ethically and inclusively? So when you say we, who is the we? The, the professionals, the actual, the, 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 yeah. often the conduit between the user or the ones with the experience from the, the, the non-AI technology. I mean, I think, so... I'm trying to really think about this. <laughs> um, data, um, I mean, so... I think there's, there's quite a lot in this. It's quite a complex question. One is actually about the, co the social contract between the people to whom the data is about and the people who are using it. So, you know, if um, there's, you know, superpowered hearing aids that I've got that gather a lot of information about the way I'm operating and we can we can imagine that you know they uh, gather all sorts of information about what I'm want to tune into or even the conversations around me and be able to develop its effectiveness in order to be able to block out certain things and tune into something that's a huge potential benefit to me but also um, that impl imp it has implications for the, the conversations I'm having the people who I'm having a dialogue with and there needs to be a really important conversation about how and the extent to which that data is used. So, um, and, and this kind of goes back, pushes back against all these points that we're talking about, which is privacy, surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's not enough for a technology company to just say, we need more data. They have to articulate um, what it's for and what they're using it for and where the boundaries are. Otherwise, we really just risk a, a breakdown, a tech lash, loss of legitimacy. I, I think I should like I can speak to this um, as one of those companies that's asking for data. Um, I would, <laughs> um, I'd like to ask that we participate because there, there 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 can be benefits to it. For example, we have a thing called Project Euphonia, 
which is, is uh, designed to help create speech models for people with non-typical speech patterns, to help better help understand a deaf accent or someone who's, who's using a second language and it has an accent that is not native to their, their language. Having more data helps. And so the more you participate, and in, the, in, this, in, this, in all of our situations where we're gathering data, we, we do it in, in a privacy-focused way, but participating helps making the process more inclusive. The more people who participate in providing data, the more inclusive the results, the end results can be. But it, it is up to us, the technology companies, to clearly state what is it for, what is it not for, and, and make the assurance that we're keeping everything private. Yeah, and I think in, in terms of looking at the, the we in a different, so the, the, as professionals, as people who are sort of driving accessibility in our worlds for people in this room, um, it's about getting into the conversations and ensuring that you stay in those conversations with the people who are doing this. Because I mean, I look at, at all of us on this stage, we are not necessarily the one single person driving, you know, how Google gathers data or what are all the projects going on or, you know, for me at Apple. But I think as, as we get into those conversations with other teams and ensure that they think this through. I mean, for example, uh, for us with Face ID, you know, our team engaged really early when we were even uh, talking about the idea of Face ID to make sure that there were all different types of faces, um, including individuals, you know, it was whether someone um, may have their eyes closed all the time, whether they may have prosthetics, you know, all different kinds of things that we looked at to help that algorithm um, and it's, a, once again, a continually iterative process. It changes in, and continues to get better all the time because we went to the Face ID team and said, let's think about this entire population of people who might not have the typical face that you would look at right off the bat. So how do we keep that process going? So it's interesting to hear that great work going on inside, but there's lots of comments here coming up about how do we trust how do we trust the companies that they're doing the right thing? How do we, we've heard about you know, the potential benefits of regulation and engagements. Um, what can we do to engage trust when it comes to accessibility and AI generally? I feel like maybe this adds a little bit to what Chris is saying about, I think that the Euphoria project is a good example where if you create transparency and clarity about what it is that the additional voice samples are being used for and what the purpose is that helps us well with some of the perhaps misconception that having more data is always better, like big data, but big data that's unorganized that we can't really make sense of, that we don't understand, that we, you know, there's this, creates a lot of risks and uncertainties about creating good quality data, understanding what are the questions we're asking of the data, what is the algorithm's purpose, how is it going to help, and if, you, if we understand that, we can also design a lot better what does the data need to look like before we collect it, uh, and, and, and in that process, you can create clarity and transparency, um, and there might be other ways in which people are then actually quite happy to donate certain voice samples, because they're understanding how it's ultimately also going to come to benefit them again. Mm -hmm. Mm, yeah, that was a very good point as well. So it's about actually having that communication about AI um, and, and, and developing it there. there. Um, right, I think we've got time for a few more questions, so just let me have a look through. Mark, have you seen any? There's one here about... Um, I, I think picking up on the thing about the data is um, how can we participate in that the other way around? So for the, particularly for the tech companies... If we were working so ability networks with disabled people in lots of different ways, is there a method for us to get in the game? A bit like you're saying, you have to do internally. 
Sarah, what are the routes into saying we're interested in this, we can see a gap in the data, there's a bias being created unintentionally. What can us in the audience, particularly from different perspectives, how do we get a route into that conversation? I, I don't really know what the, the, who holds it, how we speak to it, how we engage in it. Are, are there projects, are there pieces of work underway that we can contribute to, or generally, that, that demonstrate how that model could work? I guess there are a, a number of different ways that one could approach that. I mean, I think as a, you know, speaking from the Apple side, as, as on a baseline, there are, th- there are ways to reach us. There are, you know, accessibility at apple.com is our customer-facing email address that we've had for well over 15 years now that we gather in information from individuals to, to talk to us and tell us um, what's important to them, you know, to ask us questions and, and for us to be able to respond in those ways. Um, beyond that, you know, we, we work with organizations regularly when there are, uh, you know, questions that come in at, at, at a larger level. Um, and then just, you know, I think um, always sort of trying to find that diligent way to speak to a company and, and get to them, um, you know, through public or more private ways to ask those questions that you have. Sure. I'm also wondering whether there's a repository of and like an ethical repository of data that you could contribute to, does such a thing exist? As a different way around mm-hmm. to that, that you would then access? The, there's lots of open source, open source uh, data, databases and, and data sets that, that exist. So if, if you find something that's, that's missing, please can, can contribute to it. And that benefits everyone because we, we, all, we all need the data to create the algorithms and these open source databases are where we get some of our data. So somebody's made a comment, though, that my data is got a value we've all got our own data it's a commercial value to us so while we may want to donate data how do you and you want to know more about disabled people how do we make people understand that you're going to use it right correctly and and take into account the value of me giving it to you (laughs) (laughs) it's it's tricky i'm aware that there's a lot of funding um, streams um, out there that try to, in an ethical way, create new data sets. But I think there is still a lot of uncertainty about secondary data use. So yes, you can describe te- originally what has a database been designed for, and, and you can you know, anonymize as much of the data as you might like, but at the same time, sometimes having richer data that might have more personal information can also lead to perhaps meaningful applications. So it's a real dilemma. And then there is, there is the intention of building the data set and what it's been used for. And then secondary uses where some of these, especially if you make them really open publicly, lots of companies who have maybe different kind of moral compasses might ask questions or use this data to then generate algorithms that might not be considered ethical or people wouldn't be happy to, um, for the data to be used to, but then it's out there. And so I think we're in a, at times where these things, we're almost having more and more questions, we're understanding more and more challenges, but having the solutions is not actually that trivial. It's actually working through and understanding, first and foremost, that this is complicated. Um, it's a very deep onion, many, many layers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's probably why we're like, oh, yeah, we just got a tough question. <laughs> so I'm, uh, we've got a couple minutes left. So I'm going to ask you all to finish and just say very briefly, um, this off the head, where you think accessibility could have the next really big benefit in terms of accessibility. What's that next nut that's going to be cracked due to AI to help with the removing accessibility barriers? 
Anya. Oh, can I come last? Come last? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pick on Sarah because I know Reem is not necessarily technologist. So maybe. No, no, so, I, I have some okay. views. <laughs> so where AI? Yeah, well, what's the next big great uh, achievement for AI in, term, in an accessibility field? Um, gosh, I, I, don't, I don't, well... I don't know that there is a, a single something that I would say this is the, the next crown jewel to come. I think it, a lot of it is looking at where are the ways that we're using AI in a more general sense and ensuring that accessibility, you know, finding the ways that then that applies across, uh, you know, for individuals with accessibility needs um, more than picking one single something. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some really interesting clusters. So, you know, the language translation, learning stuff is very interesting. At the moment, most services and products are about, um, you know, translation. Again, they make a lot of assumptions about people's ability to access, say, translate services. But I was having a really good chat yesterday, again, about, um, as somebody who's hard of hearing, I found learning languages very, very difficult. Um, and I can really see, if someone could... I don't know whether anyone here is thinking about um, language learning for deaf and hard of hearing people using machine learning systems, but I could really see potential or a gap there in terms of a kind of Duolingo equivalent for people who, who are hard of hearing who, who might be able to. So I think there's something really interesting uh, in the space of, as I say, and, and has already been said, there's no really one size fits all thing. But the interesting thing about AI is that um, given the, uh, I guess, the ability to use data um, about particular needs and groups of people, given that ability is there, if used rightly, it could actually develop really personalised services. And there is something, there is a potential to that. There are risks to that, but there is a potential to that. I, I think that's, it's important to acknowledge the potential. That's great. Christopher? Um, I think Sarah's point is a really important one, that we need to make that sure that the AI that is generally created is generally inclusive for everyone. But doing the work that we've done with our, our Lookout team, um, computer vision is, and, and recognition is really, really hard. A camera doesn't know the difference between a door and a refrigerator. It's the context mm -hmm. that will help. So for me, I think if, if we can sort of crack visual recognition, visual understanding, be it through contextual awareness of where you are. If I'm in a bathroom, it's probably not a refrigerator. Maybe in a hotel it could be. Um, but generally, having the, 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 these visual algorithms have a better ability to recognize items in the real world. Um, if we crack that, that could really open up a lot of applications that just don't exist today. I think... It's probably related to context, the way I'm thinking about it, and it comes back to an earlier point around collaboration, like how, how can we to use AI technology that provides certain functionality, it can be a really powerful information resource that, you know, still can be developed much better to be more robustly working, but when, if I have these different resources that enable me, they enable different information that I can use, how do I come to use them in different situations, and kind of almost thinking more about how can we use the AI functionality that is being developed, whether that's speech recognition, whether it's computer vision, you know, how do we bring that into people's lives in a way that's a bit more fluid, dynamic, in, in interactions that we might have, independent on which context we're in, but that we really come to interact with AI technology in a way that really helps 
augment our own capabilities in really meaningful ways, it would be nice to see some more development around that. But to do it, do it in a way that it's not creepy. Because if it's, if it's too good, it's, it's creepy. So it has to be just bad enough so that it's not creepy, but useful enough that people want to use it. Oh, I think that's a great point to end on there, particularly because it's lunchtime. And I think I really want to... We've always... I think we've probably raised more questions than answers, but I think that's probably because this is a new field and we'll be talking about it for years and years and we should be talking about it. So it's just great to hear you think. I think we just want to thank our speakers. Mm-hmm. Um,